Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Saft and the MR Running Pains podcast. Today's my guest is Stephen Sashin. Stephen is the founder of Zero Shoes, X-E-R-O. Um, he has um, just a lot of information to share, um, a lot of it research-based, and that's what I appreciate. He brings to the conversation some, some facts to support what he's preaching, uh, which is awesome. And, um, I, I really had a good, conver- you know, good conversation with Steven really had a good time as well. Um, it, it was a really, um, fun time. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, you know, and take away some things from it too. I really do. I hope you can, t- you know, get some new ideas, um, and, uh, and think outside of the box and not necessarily to transform yourself into a, a minimalistic runner, but, um, perhaps to, to help change your form, um, or the way you think about shoes. So uh, please enjoy this conversation with Stephen, and I'll talk to you after the interview. I've got here with me Stephen Session. How are you, sir? I am well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's uh, probably a little bit earlier for you right now, so I appreciate you coming on oh, on this hour. <laughs> don't be ridiculous, dude. I've been up since like 5 a.m. <laughs> I, I, I had an 8 a.m. meeting, and I had to set, which means I had to set an alarm. And I don't know about you, but whenever I have to set an alarm, I wake up like 10 times at night, like panic. Right, right. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm awake for now, let's say. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate it. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and your background and how you evolved into this, uh, this brand Zero Shoes. Well, when a mommy loves a daddy very much. Then, um, <laughs> we can fast forward a little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what happened for me is that 14 years ago, I got back into sprinting after a 30-year break. And for the next two years, I was getting injured pretty much constantly. I don't think I had a two-week stretch where I wasn't injured uh, or where I remained uninjured is a better way of putting it. And after a couple of years of that, a friend of mine who's a world champion cross-country runner said, why don't you try running barefoot and see what you learn? Now, quick you know, spoiler alert, I'm not going to tell people to run barefoot, but this is what he suggested to me. Just so happened, there was a barefoot running club that was just getting started. They were having a big event that weekend. I went out and joined them. Um, now I'm a sprinter. I run the hundred meters. I don't even take turns because I don't know how to use a GPS watch. So, uh, so I've never run more than a mile in my life because I just am not wired for that. Okay. We get to this event. I take off my shoes. We're running on grass and roads and trails and dirt and everything you could think of. And I was so enthralled with the experience. Um, it was just amazing. And I kept experimenting. Like, what happens if I pick up my cadence? What happens if I slow down my cadence? What happens if I land on my foot this way or that way? What if I run faster at the same cadence or slower at the same cadence? I mean, anything I could think of, I was just playing with and I was just having a blast. And at the end of this run, which we stopped prematurely, I could have kept going because um, I was so into it. Someone had a GPS watch on and I said, how far was that? She goes, that's a little over 5k. I was like, what? <laughs> so that just stunned me. And now here's the kicker. I ended up with a blister on the ball of my left foot. Many people I have since discovered in that situation say things like, ah, this is nonsense. I got a blister. I thought, hey, how come my right foot is fine? And my left foot's the leg that gets injured more often. So what's up with that? So I was curious. The next week was barefoot run number two. I had a gaping hole in the ball of my left foot. And I thought if I could find a way to run, that didn't hurt. Maybe I wouldn't be doing the thing that caused the gaping hole to begin with. So I thought, all right, I'll give it 10 minutes. If it doesn't work, no big deal. I'll come back later when I feel nine minutes and 30 seconds of agony later um, in one stride, everything changed. And to make a long story short, what led to, I mean, by everything changed. I mean, my running got faster, easier, 
lighter, more enjoyable. I mean, like everything changed. And what I realized was that I had been overstriding. So I'm landing with my foot out in front of me and putting on the brakes. As a sprinter though, dorsal or plantar flexing, pointing my toes. So I'm landing on the ball of that foot and putting braking forces on. That's what causes blisters. Well, I stopped doing that. And that not doing that continued. And so my injuries went away. I became faster. I became a master's All-American. So I'm 59 and a half. Um, you know, when you're a kid and when you get to this age, you start doing advanced. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm still an All-American. And I've basically been uninjured for the last 12 years since you know, having that discovery. And that natural movement thing was so compelling. I wanted to do it all the time. And I had discovered very quickly that if you walk into many places barefoot, they get very mad at you. <laughs> and they say things like it's illegal, even though it's not, or it's a health code violation, even though it's not, or you're not allowed to drive that way, even though that's not true. So I decided to make some sandals based on this 10,000 year old design idea of what humans have done for most of human history, something to protect your foot, something to hold it on your foot, end of story. And I just was doing that as a goofy hobby. I made, you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 pairs for people because they kept telling other people and we'd sit on the street cutting out big sheets of rubber into foot shapes and placing them <laughs> on people's feet. And one day, the guy who ran that workshop said, I've got a book coming out called Barefoot Running. If you had a website and treated this hobby like a business, I'd put you in the book. Well, here's the end of the story. Um, I've been an internet marketer since 1992. I rush home. I've built hundreds of websites. I rushed home and pitched this incredible opportunity to my wife, who told me I was a complete idiot and it was a waste of time and money and wouldn't make any money and, you know, don't do it. It's a big distraction. And I, I'm a good husband, so I told her I wouldn't do it. And then I'm a typical husband, so I waited till she went to bed before I built the website. <laughs> and that was 12 years and a couple of weeks ago. And now here we are, not just with a do-it-yourself sandal kit, but a whole line of boot shoes and sandals that people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons. That's awesome. That is so great. Uh, man, and, you know, when you started designing and, you know, obviously the, the sandals, like you said, they're, they're simplistic. It's, you know, a simplistic idea. But when you get into footwear, you've got a lot more complexities, um, you know, such as the upper, how does that join to the, uh, yeah. the, you know, the midsole or the outsole. Um, so what, um, what were your thoughts in designing a running shoe? What thought did you put into it? Well, there were a couple of things. First was, it was an organic process that led us there. At first we were selling just a do-it-yourself kit, literally big sheet of rubber, cut into smaller sheets of rubber, big things of cord, cut into smaller things of cord. Here's some instructions. <laughs> enjoy. And we thought that was going to be our whole business or variations thereof. And then people kept saying, well, I don't want to make my own. So, you know, can you give me something ready to wear? And I had to develop entire, well, I have a patent on a lacing system for sandals that to figure out how to do something similar to what like the Tatamara do in Mexico or what indigenous people have done for thousands of years to make something that was easy to get on and off, easy to adjust, comfortable. I mean, I'd sit around, we had a hot tub at our house at that time that we were renting and uh, renting the house, not the hot tub. And hot tub came with the house. This is all self-obvious, I know, but I realized I said it wrong. Um, I'd sit there just imagining lacing systems and tying styles. And then I came up with something that we then it had never been done and then patented, which was pretty fun. Uh, and then people said, well, that's cool. I don't like that warache style with you know, a thong between my toes, even though it's not like a flip-flop because the lacing goes all the way around your foot. So there's no pressure points in between your toes. And so then we made a sports sandal and that had a whole bunch of complexities because we don't have layers of sole to put things in between and glue in between. So we had to come up with a whole new system for doing that as well. And then people say, great, I love these sandals. What about when it's cold or when I need to go to work? And so that's what brought us to shoes. So 
honestly, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought because by the time we were doing shoes, we had a developer on our team, our chief product officer, a guy named Dennis Driscoll. And Dennis, he co-founded Avia Footwear back in the 80s. He worked for Converse, for Doc Martin, for DKNY, for Wilson Sporting Goods. I mean, he's, he's been doing this for at that time for 40 years or 35 years. And so he knew a lot about how about footwear construction. But what my the part that where I interjected was that we were doing something very different. We weren't just gluing layers upon layers upon layers. It was not an outsole and a midsole and you know scrubble layer and like all that stuff. We had to get rid of as much as possible. And so I didn't know anything about footwear manufacturing, but I'm pretty good at figuring out how things work and what the common factors of something is or are. And so um, I was kind of chiming in with what I thought made sense for how to do some of the construction. For example, uh, many of our customers will wear shoes in bare feet. And some people want more barefoot feel, some people want a little more protection. So this insole or sock liner, some people are gonna to wanna to take it out. So we had to make sure that if they took it out, it was comfortable on their foot. And so I had to chime in about what the customer experience was gonna be, which would then change the design and the manufacturing process. And that was, uh, that was an ongoing battle because the, the factories we were working with, they've been doing it one way for 50 years. And to get them to do it a different way was you know, pulling teeth and twisting arms and whatever other metaphor you can think of for difficulty. <laughs> um, your company is very complementary of your why. Right. So yeah. you're, you've got consistency throughout your line. Like you yeah. can see that um, when you created the mold, you know, the shape of these shoes for those that, that don't know what the mold is. Can you talk about how that consistency came in? What was, what was the thought pattern in, in the shape of the shoe, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was fun once we, so we knew fundamentally that we wanted to do some things that were good for human feet. So I'm going to hold up a kind of tech, classic running shoe. And if you were seeing it, you know, it's got a big pointy toe box. And the question is, what's up with that? Because right. no one's foot is shaped like that naturally. And if it's shaped like that, it's not supposed to be. So we knew we were going to make something with a wider toe box. The question then becomes how wide and what shape? Well, we were really lucky. When we were doing our do-it-yourself sandals, we also had a service where we'd custom make sandals for you. So if you didn't feel comfortable using a pair of scissors to cut out a shape of your foot, we would do it. You would send us a tracing of your foot. We'd cut them out. We'd lace them up. We'd send it back to you. So we had a database of about five or 6,000 tracings of people's feet. And we literally put them on a board and drew around them, put pinholes in you know, places where we were seeing where toes were. Just, so we, we, we were able to use that information from the sandals to not accommodate everybody because there were some people whose feet were practically square. And there's some people whose feet looked like pencils and everything in between. So we wanted to make something that would cover the broadest, the largest amount of that bell curve of foot widths. And that's, and we just took all those tracings and literally stuck them on some, um, uh, what's the word, like foam core and until we could map something out. And that was what we used to make the last or the mold for the shoe. Nice, very nice, cool. Um, you had this just kind of brought up the typical shape of a, you know, a traditional, we'll call it running shoe. Oh, let's not call it, let's not call it traditional okay. because, because this idea, the modern running shoe is a 50 year old intervention. And the way it came to be is a story that most people don't know. It was accidental. Um, it was ill thought out. 
It was never proven and has never been proven, but the footwear industry is just a bunch of copycats. So once someone did that and started selling really well, everyone else started doing the same thing because they were afraid they'd never sell another product. And you see that if you look at the history of modern running shoes, you see that repeated every few years. It's going on now. I was just at a running shoe trade show called the running event. And we were listed as one of the best shoes at the show. Every other shoe listed looked exactly the same. Super, super thick, maximally cushioned. You could replace the logos and no one would ever know the difference. And, um, but it wasn't like that a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. But now everyone's doing it because they're, they think that's what is the only thing that's going to sell. If we don't do it, we're out of business. So to be clear, I use the term modern running shoe, but even that's not great because it, somehow people think modern is better. But um, let's just say the running shoes of the last 50 years. Okay. <laughs> anyway, you were saying. No, it's fine. Um, the what I wanted to get to was that that pointy design. Yeah. Um, you know, when we do that, when we compromise the foot, right? So the natural shape of the foot is obviously, as you just said, not pointy, right? So what happens when we put our foot into something uh, yeah. that has that shape? So one of the strongest parts of the of your foot is the longitudinal arch. What people think of as the arch. What controls the arch is your big toe. If you're squeezing your big toe against your second toe, if you're squeezing your toes together, you can't actually engage. Well, there's two things. Um, but the first is if you squeeze your toes together, you can't engage the arch properly. And if the sole is stiff or thick enough, you can't flex that toe in either direction, really, but especially plantar flexing, point, pulling it down. Um, that last thing is your toe, foot is coming off the ground where you'd be pushing into the ground. You can't do that effectively. And so you don't get that strength out of your foot. And when you're landing, you're not getting the shock absorption that your foot is designed to give you with the, arch, the three arches that are built into your foot. The reason there's a thing called toe spoon in a shoe where from the ball of the foot, it angles, it angles up is because the shoe doesn't bend properly. And, it, and what that does is two things. The toe spring kind of allows you to have something that feels like a more natural push off, but it also is constantly keeping your toes slightly dorsiflex pulled towards your knee, which is not a good position or the right position to your, for your, your toes to be in to give you the maximum amount of power and control, whether you're running, walking, hiking, or doing pretty much anything. Is there an appropriate thickness um, or an appropriate amount of mid foam, mid, excuse me, mid sole foam? Um, that's a very, I like that you qualified that with, with, with the amount of uh, mid sole or, or foam. Um, so Dr. Irene Davis went, from Harvard did some research, just did a lot of research on footwear. And what she shows is that basically almost any amount of foam is problematic. And, but I want to qualify that a little bit. So to back up to the question you almost asked, which is, you know, what is there an appropriate amount of thickness? Thickness is not, it's not all about thickness because it's also about the material itself. You can have steel that's super thin, but doesn't move. You can have something super, super, super you know, movie. Um, actually, let's use the Nike Free as an example. Really thick sole, but because it's articulated, it moves better than most. I don't know if you remember the first time trying it on, um, but it was miraculous. Like I, my foot is articulating, still pointy still a lot of foam, but you could, you could feel the ground a little bit, which you'd never been able to do before. So there's more than just thickness that goes into it, but where the thickness is mostly relevant, isn't more, uh, and where the mid, mid sole or that foam in the middle layer is more relevant is less about motion, although that's a big part of it. In fact, wait, hold on, I'm gonna take that back. It's partly about motion because you can't move when you have more foam. It's partly about cushioning or what people think of as cushioning. And what I mean by that is if you go to Irene Davis's research, what she shows is that 
almost any amount of foam reduces the amount of feedback you're getting from the ground in such a way that you can't adjust to the terrain you're on properly. And you'll often end up having movement patterns that are not ideal and you can't tell you're doing it because you can't feel. And the other thing that's, this is gonna sound paradoxical. Uh, again, when I say cushioning doesn't cushion, research from Do uh, Chris, Dr. Christine Pollard and many others, to their surprise, showed that loading forces into your knee, essentially tibial loading forces, are not reduced by cushioning. Cushioning doesn't cushion. And there's a really interesting reason for it. This came from Dr. Isabel Sacco in Brazil. Your feet, the soles of your feet have mechanoreceptors that are sensitive to pressure. So when you have some foam, it spreads out the pressure, but it doesn't change the force. It's a weird, subtle distinction. So the force is still going up into your body, even though you're not feeling the pressure in your feet. And if you're, for example, overstriding and heel striking, your leg is relatively straight. So the force is going straight up into your, through your ankle, into your, into your, uh, your shin basically, and into your knee and then into your hips and back. So any, almost any amount of cushioning, uh, I mean, after you know, a millimeter or two, will, will make it so that you're not feeling enough to get the feedback that you need to adjust to a gait that doesn't put those forces through your body incorrectly. If you're not overstriding, if you're landing midfoot and using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons as the shock absorbers and springs and joint protectors they're supposed to be, that can be helpful. So research from Isabel Sacco, again, she put minimalist, minimalist footwear, not ours. She was using a very inexpensive minimalist shoe from made in Brazil. She put it on the, the feet of elderly women, 65 year old plus women, and just said, wear these shoes. And they had knee osteoarthritis, not self-reported knee pain, x-ray imaging showing they had osteoarthritis. In six months, it was reduced or gone. And I said, what changed? She goes, they stopped overstriding and heel striking. They started using their muscles, ligaments, and tendons. It took the force off the joints and lo and behold, the osteoarthritis went away. Now this shouldn't have been shocking because the way people research osteoarthritis is they'll take an animal like a rabbit and they straighten its leg and they percuss the heel. They tap on the heel which puts force into the knee and causes arthritis. And then the way they test any cures is they, the control is they just stop doing that to the rabbit <laughs> and the rabbit naturally heals. <laughs> and then they do all these other things to see if it works any better or worse. But most of it is just stop doing the thing that caused the problem to begin with, like the blister on the foot. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So where did this um, notion of creating a, um, a larger heel come from? Oh boy. Uh, here's the fun one. So, if you look, um, again, this is an invention that kicked in in the early 70s. Like, um, how old are you? I am 44. Oh, you're a child. So, <laughs> you're, so you weren't there when, like when I was. So, so again, I'm 59 and change. Um, when the Nike Waffle Trainer came out, it was basically a flat shoe, about 10 millimeters of foam, a little bit of toe spring, but more that it was just that the foam got thinner at the toe. Um, so it was more like just changing the the geometry, but not actually spring. And I remember um, as a, and it, but essentially flat, probably a zero drop. I'd have to find one again to find out. But that little bit of toe spring, I remember I was 10 or 11 years old. It was miraculous because as a sprinter, I run on the ball of my foot and I, I started to lean forward just to take off. It's like, oh my God, it's pushing me onto that part of my foot that I run on, which just felt great. So flat shoe. And if you look prior to that, almost all, well, all running shoes were flat. They frankly looked like what we're doing. And which is what footwear looked like for, again, up until about you know, 70, 72. So where did it come from? Bill Bowerman, when he was getting Nike started, was sharing a building with some, I, I can never remember if they were sports podiatrists or orthopedic podiatrists, 
or both, um, but that's not the important part. And he comes to them and says, I'm getting these new runners coming out to the track with me and they're getting Achilles tendonitis. What do you recommend? And these doctors said, well, clearly their Achilles have shortened from wearing higher heel dress shoes. So you wanna make a higher heel running shoe like with the foam wedge to accommodate that Achilles so they're not putting that kind of strain on their Achilles. Because if you, if you have a foam wedge and you still land on the ball of your foot or your midfoot, your, your, your heel doesn't come all the way down to the ground. So you're not stretching your Achilles as much, which is actually silly because your Achilles is an amazing giant spring. So if you're not using it all the way, you're not getting all that free energy back from using your Achilles. But suffice it to say, that was the idea behind this. Well, cut to 30 years later and a guy who worked directly with Bowerman for like 25 years plus, who's a friend of mine, was at a track meet with one of these doctors. And he said, you know, your idea, the wedge foam wedge, uh, has become ubiquitous, like every shoe company, that's what they do now. And the guy says, yeah, I'm aware of that. And my friend says, what do you think about that? And the doctor says, biggest mistake we ever made. We had no evidence for this Achilles shortening thing. We had no evidence that this was a solution, but we were making prosthetics for people. And so we saw everything with a prosthetic lens and uh, that's where it came from. But again, footwear companies are copycats. And so once the, so in fact, Arthur Lydiard, probably the most successful running coach in history, coached from New Zealand, it's a tiny country, more world champions and Olympians than anyone else at everything from the 400 to the marathon. He made shoes for a living and he made shoes that looked a lot like ours, thin, flat, wide toe box, flexible, lightweight. Lydiard said to Bowerman, the, that design is going to kill people. And the way one of Lydiard's students reported it back to me was uh, Bowerman's response was, we're selling a shitload of them. And so again, once that happens, everyone else just jumps on the bandwagon. And here we are 50 years later, and everyone thinks that's normal. I also heard a story, this may be a urban legend, if you will, that he was also trying to find a way to help increase stride length. And the I, I don't know about that. And that, you know, that was kind of funny because stride length is very misunderstood. People think that you increase stride length by just reaching your foot out. That's what stride I, length, right. Yeah, stride length is actually just a function. I mean, let's just define it. It's the distance between one foot and the next foot landing on the ground. And it's not about just reaching out because if you reach out, you don't have as much force being applied into the ground at the right angle that moves you forward properly. So, so but because our eyes are in the front of our face, we think of stride length in front of us. But if you look at really good runners, they're not reaching out in front of them. Their stride is behind them. For propulsion. So they have all that move, movement behind them, not in front of them. So that's a... I, I think that is urban myth because I think Bowerman is smart enough to understand what stride length really is. Now, granted, there are some successful runners who do overstride and heel strike, whatever. But I always caution people, you know, when you look at Olympians, for example, and look at what they're doing, it's like, if you're not a five foot, 305 pound Kenyan, why are you looking at one to get ideas about what to do? Especially if that Kenyan is doing everything or American too, if that runner is doing everything they can to try to win a race to secure finances to support them or whatever their new career is going to be for the rest of your life, the rest of their life. I mean, notice, especially with distance runners, how few of them are still running after the age of like 34. You know, if you want to be a healthy, happy runner in your seventies, eighties and beyond, you don't necessarily want to do the same thing that Olympians who burn out in their thirties are doing. Right. Yep. No, that's, that's sure. Um, so, um, you know, we, we've kind of discussed how, um, a, you know, a higher heel, if you will, a uh, thicker midsole, it mm -hmm. can cause um, a misstep and, or, you know, a uh, uh, imperfection in, in form. Um, well, 
I'm going, right. to, I'm going to interrupt and jump in with another thing. So I'm going to hold it up so you can see this shoe doesn't even have as much of a flared heel as most do. So if you have a flared sole, when, if you're landing, even if you're landing, if you're landing on your heel, or if you have a flared um, sole that's, you know, in the midfoot area, if it's flared anywhere, you tend to land appropriately on the outside edge of your foot, you're supinated, and then you roll into pronation. That's natural. If you have something that's extending out past where your heel would naturally land, for physics geeks out there, you're increasing the moment arm. You're creating torque that speeds up and changes the vector of how your foot goes from supination to pronation and leads to certain kinds of muscular imbalances and vibration and forces that are that we're not really wired to handle because that's not the way our body is made. So that's just another function of the elevated heel is the flared sole because let's, let's back up a little bit. Once you elevate the heel, it, it, um, Dan Lieberman from Harvard has a great video showing a African runner who just ran barefoot. And you watch his foot as it comes to the ground, the heel barely misses the ground as it gets to a midfoot landing. Then he puts shoes on the runner with an elevated heel. And suddenly the guy without changing anything is landing with his foot further in front of his body on the heel because the heel is basically just getting in the way of where his foot would naturally travel. So, um, so if you land on your heel, your heel is a ball. Balls are unstable. So people saw this very quickly and they started making motion control to try to deal with that instability. But it doesn't really work because when you land on the ground, if you're a 150 pound runner and you're just running casually, you're landing with 300 to 400 pounds of force in the ground. There's no foam that can handle three to 400 pounds of force at the speed that, you're, that you need it to deploy. It just doesn't work. And you can see this. I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, who used to be the head of biomechanics for the US Olympic Committee. And he would film people at 500 frames a second from the side and from the back. And you would see this. You would see people landing on the outside edge of their flared sole shoe. And you just watch this ripple of vibration go up their calf into their hamstring. And at slow motion, it looks terrifying. So, you know, and for him, he said, if you're gonna run like that, you at least wanna put on calf sleeves to try to reduce the vibration. But that vibration isn't good because it interferes. It's what he was saying is it interfered with the neural signals that are telling your muscles how to fire. Gotcha, okay. Um... So uh, what can, can I, this, sorry, sorry, I've got to interrupt really quick. First of all, I'm, uh, you're asking great questions. I'm having a blast, but what I'm loving most about this conversation is I get on YouTube or I post videos and many people think when I talk about this stuff, I'm just spouting opinions. They don't think I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, no, you, you've cited quite uh, the amount of sources. So yeah, so uh, it's, it's, a treat to, it, no, it's a treat to be able to get into the science with you because you understand enough to ask the right questions. Oh, good, good, good. Um, so, you know, we've now we're designed by design, right? And this is the, the footwear manufacturers are creating this design, these flares. Yeah. When we, um, when we do this repetitively, because we are, obviously this is a very repetitive sport, how many foot strikes we have per run. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, perhaps over time it's creating a, um, uh, a new movement pattern, right? Perhaps one Absolutely. that's, and it's not natural to our body. Absolutely which, you know, potentially can lead to, you know, susceptible injuries. No. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that for a moment. What could, you know, what are some things that people can look for or, you know, or know ahead of time or feel, yeah. you know, potentially is going on so that they're <laughs> like, well, maybe, maybe this is because of, you know, what I'm, yeah. what I'm doing. It, um, it's a really interesting question. I'm going to back up a little bit. Have you ever seen a three-year-old running and then go, oh, I pulled a hamstring? No, I have not. No, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> if you watch little kids running, uh, they have amazing form. 
they land with their foot under their body. They land sort of flat foot, mid-footed. They have just the right amount of body lean. They're, they have this weird look on their face called, um, I think the medical term is smiling. Uh, <laughs> they do it for fun. They, right. When they're tired, they stop. Then they sit down. Then they get up and do it again. You know, they're having a blast. And then you look at them a couple of years later after they've been put in regular shoes, and it's a whole different game. So the, the problem, you know, there are a lot of people who have tried to answer the question you just asked. What can I feel in advance to know that something bad is about to happen? And I have a bad answer, nothing. Because the shoe is basically designed to try to mitigate all the things that you would feel that would tell you you're doing it wrong. Again, let's go back to my blister. Again, I'm not suggesting people run barefoot, but the thing about barefoot running is doing it wrong hurts, doing it right feels good. I mean, it's unequivocal. If you want to see, if you want to spot a barefoot runner, you can spot them from 50 yards away. They look like kids, they're, having a, they're smiling. They don't look like they're just grinding out the miles. And so uh, here's, a, here's a, a perfect version or way of addressing this. Nike did a study a couple of years ago. They published it originally right before COVID and then they published it again. We tried to get more attention for it like the beginning of 2021 as well. And they took a new shoe they developed, the React Infinity Run, that they said they had designed to reduce injury as if any shoe was ever designed to increase injury. I mean, that alone is just ridiculous. Anyway, they compared it to their best-selling distance shoe, the Zoom Structure 22. They developed and, they developed and designed a 12-week um, half marathon training program. They paid for the thing to be tested. They call it an independent study because someone outside of Nike did the study. And the way it was reported in the media by Nike, and literally Nike reported it, the media just reprinted what Nike said, was this shoe reduced injury by 52%. Okay. Cool. But then you look at the data, which no one seemingly did. I got it um, way back when I found the researcher and I said, can I get the paper? And he said, well, we haven't printed it yet, but here's the data. It's like, awesome. Okay. In the Zoom Structure 22, their best-selling motion control shoe, over 30% of the people got injured within a 12-week period. And an injury was something that kept them out for at least three training sessions, which means at least a week. That's a real injury. Some of the studies about, quote, barefoot running, which were not really about barefoot running, defined an injury as um, calf soreness you know, whole different game. This was like, right. put you out for a while. In the React Infinity Run, 15% got injured. So 15%, let's call it one out of seven, 30% is roughly two out of seven, seven days in a week. So which restaurant can I take you to every night this week? The one where you get food poisoning twice or the one where you only get it once? You know, they, they could have published the study with Nike proves their shoes injure people, but that's not what they did. <laughs> and the problem, you know, if that many people are getting injured, clearly we're not getting the information that we need to get to, to make adjustments or stop. Because otherwise we're not idiots. Our brain is wired to pay attention to feedback to make us stop doing painful things. The reason that we can get sick from drinking a glass of water is that we never develop the ability to see microscopically so we can tell if there's dangerous bacteria. We became hypersensitive to what's going on inside of our body to know if that was a good idea or a bad idea. Same thing with movement patterns. I mean, you know, you do bench presses and if you're at the wrong angle, your shoulders tell you. You run barefoot in the wrong way, your feet and knees and everything tells you. So the shoes are mitigating some of those, again, mitigating the pressure and mitigating some of the feedback you would otherwise get, which is why I believe, no one's been able to demonstrably prove this, and I can say more about that. I believe that's why, since the advent of the modern new running shoe, uh, every year, 50% of runners and 80% of marathoners get injured. It hasn't changed despite all the quote advances that shoe companies keep putting out. And every time they have some new advance, you may have noticed they haven't said, here's our new thing. By the way, sorry for that crap we've been selling up until now. 
<laughs> Let's take a step back because I think this conversation would be incomplete if we didn't just talk about the basic principle of what is pronation and why sure, do we sure. do it and is it a bad thing? Because uh, <laughs> um, you know at, this conversation has been had, and but I think it's yeah. it warrants that everybody should hear it and make yeah. sure it comes from another source. Okay, so pronation is uh, if you're standing flat. Pronating is when your weight moves to the inside of your foot, and you're basically your. Uh, I don't want to get too technical. Um, you know, your the inside of your ankle bone is getting closer to the ground. Best way to put it. It's a natural part of the gait cycle. If you're walking barefoot, you go from supination, where you're, the outside of your foot is lower than the inside of your foot, and then you get flat. And then as you're taking off, you roll into pronation, where the inside of your foot is lower than the outside of your foot. That's maybe a better way of saying it. Well, let's go back to shoes again. Once you put padding on the heel and you're overstriding and landing on that ball that is your heel, you normally start supinated, landing with the outside of your foot lower to the ground, and then you roll into pronation. Well, like I said, if you have that extra torque, that extra lever in a flared sole, it makes pronation happen faster. And this was a thing from Bill Sands. Pronation is a natural part of the gait cycle. It's a natural part of the spring-like mechanism of your foot, ankle, knee, hip, and lower back complex. But if you have hyperpronation, it happens too fast to, for you to control, that creates a problem because you just can't adjust quickly enough. Your, your spinal cord, and then which is about reflexes, and your brain, which is about more gross motor skills, isn't getting the information that it needs in time to send information back to make those adjustments. So the idea that pronation is a problem, complete mythology and marketing bullshit. And you may have noticed I got a little more... Um, uh, something when I said marketing bullshit, because the footwear industry is full of that. And I find it morally repugnant that footwear companies misuse physics, for example, to sell products by lying to people. Cause that's what, when you misuse physics, that's what you're doing. You're lying to people. So there's a footwear researcher named Simon Bartold. Simon was a big anti-pronation guy for many, many, many years. He insisted that you know you had to get shoes that were motion controlling and you had to wear orthotics to, mo to control motion because pronation is a problem. Well, Simon no longer believes pronation is a problem. And if you ask him why, he just says simply, I just looked at all the research. There is zero evidence linking pronation to injury. That said, hyperpronation can be problematic. So, um, and people, are, the only way you can measure that is on force plates with super high speed uh, equipment. So, it's a bit tricky, but when you go into a running shoe store and they stick you on a and they look at you at 60 frames a second and tell you, A, you pronate and B, you need shoes to, to, to prevent that, they're regurgitating what some shoe company told them that they needed to do to sell a particular shoe. Did I, did I leave you speechless? Uh, sorry, it just, uh, it froze for a second there. Um, oh. But we're all back. It's all good. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> sorry. The um, I, you know the I um I have zero. Just to be clear to, to everybody listening, I have zero Nikes in my shoe lineup. Um, what I found interesting, and I, I talked with Nathan Lehman, who's the owner of uh, the Ultra Running Company in Charlotte, and we had a great conversation about footwear. Um, he um, you know, we talked about the uh, the book Tread Lightly. Um, which, you know, published um, information that Nike had done their own research in stating that stability was ineffectual. There was no, you know, there was no benefit to adding stability to a shoe. And, right. you know, their 
their Nike structure, which was their, you know, last standing oh. stability shoe. Yeah. Well, it finally came out of line and, you know, I, I actually felt pretty good about the fact that they finally took a stance and said that we believe firmly enough that like this really isn't doing anything. So they, they pulled that. So kudos to them now, you know, it needs to keep evolving and, you know, of course they want to keep selling well, shoes. But well, you're, raising the, you're raising the interesting question. You know, this it's common knowledge from the company that was promoting this, right? Why is it that the mo almost every shoe company or every shoe store and almost every shoe wearer still believes this is a problem? Right. Right. And I, I think it's because it's been such ingrained into our culture, you know, and into our running culture. Um, when, when I first started in the running industry, um, I was back in around 2000, um, you know, the, at, like our inventory back then I was discussing as it is to say was primarily stability shoes. Right. You know, it was, and there was, you know, the, the GT 2000 by ASICs and there was the GTS, which, you know, as jokingly, we called the go-to shoes. That's what GT stood for to us was the go-to shoe because yeah. we believed, right, right. According to, as you said, what the industry was saying was that we needed that for everybody. Now, as we continue to learn and evolve the you know stability category shrunk for, for us personally, as a, you know, a footwear store, um, because, you know, we weren't seeing that it was as needed. Um, right. but, um, you know, some people believe, and you, you had talked about earlier how, um, you know, the amount of cushioning, um, would be more, uh, absorbing, you know, cushioning, if you will, towards, um, the, the road, uh, or protective towards the trail, um, to those that, um, you know, to those that are, are worried about that sort of thing, um, what can they do? to be more um, comfortable with wearing, I won't say barefoot, you know, going barefoot or, you know, not quite minimal, but what can they start to do to, to start to mimic or trend that way? Yeah, you can't, um, when the whole barefoot boom kicked off in 2009, 2010, uh, a, there are a number of companies, well, the first thing that the big shoe companies did was say, this is a horrible and dangerous and evil. And if you run barefoot or in really minimal shoes, you'll step on hypodermic needles, you'll get Ebola, <laughs> your kids won't get into college, your car will you know, blow a basket. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. By two, like, late 2010, uh, a number of these companies were making what they called minimalist footwear, but it actually wasn't. It was partial minimalist, according to Irene Davis. And I said, if you weren't being politically correct, would you change that to fake minimalist? And she said, well, yeah. So, <laughs> um, uh, so, and the companies that weren't doing that, like Adi, for example, they, sorry, that was me being pretentious, um, Adidas for Americans. So, or Adidas if you're Europeans or Adi if you're super cool and you want to get uh, people annoyed to you at parties, annoyed <laughs> at you at parties. Um, uh, what they started doing was what they call transition shoes. So less and less heel drop, less and less cushioning with the idea that if you've been in a big, thick cushioned heel elevated shoe, you want to, you need to slowly make the transition. Totally not true. doesn't have any value whatsoever. The way you make the transition is by, by my, <laughs> let's say microdosing, um, if you will, like you, if you're going to go, if you want to get strong and you want to go to the gym, you don't just go in and do eight hours worth of bicep curls. You do one set of eight with a weight that feels too light. Then you see how you feel the next day. If you're stupidly sore, you go, oh crap, and you do a little less the next time until you can do that one set of eight with a weight where you feel good. And then you start increasing the number of reps or the number of sets or the amount of weight. And you do any one of those just based on how you feel, based on what you, you like doing. Some people like lifting heavier for lower volume. Some people like lifting lighter weights for higher volume, for example, or higher reps. Same idea with footwear. 
what you want to do is put yourself in that new situation, but do a tiny, tiny little bit. So I'll use the instructions I give for barefoot running, but this is true if you're running in a minimal shoe. This is true if you're on a road or a trail or anything ultimately. So here's the basic idea. Let's just talk about road running barefoot. Find a nice, smooth, hard surface because you'll get the most feedback that way and you don't have to worry about things you're stepping on. Do a super short run, 20 or 30 seconds. If you're not having fun, do something different till you are. Now let's add a little extra thing to that. See how you feel the next day or day or two days later, depending on how old you are, because um, DOMS kicks in uh, later, the older you get. Like now, if I do a hard workout, the next day I feel fine. Two days later, I can't move. So um, used to be right away. In fact, I know that I'm in, I know that I'm in bad shape if I do a hard workout and I feel sore six hours later. It's like, oh man, I'm screwed. Um, I'm going to need help getting on a toilet in two days. So anyway, um, you want to check a day or so later and see how you feel. If you feel just like a little muscular soreness, you want to do two things go out and do that same 20 seconds again, but see if you can relax a little more. See if you can use less effort because the soreness is just coming from doing, not really overuse, not, it's not necessarily using muscles and ligaments and tendons you haven't used in a while, although it could be that. It's often just using them more than is necessary because you're used to doing something, you're used to a gait pattern that's making you do more than what's necessary. And once you feel good, just start adding 10 seconds at a time. And this is the, here's the trail version of that. Go on an easy trail, one without a lot of obstacles, because the biggest thing you're going to learn on a trail is how to pay attention to the terrain and use the terrain instead of trying to just obliviously cover, go over the terrain. I mean, I've run barefoot here in the Rocky Mountains with people up and down mountains, um, and we're like mountain goats. You know, you're finding things to step on to use them rather than uh, or avoid them. Uh, but it's, it's a different way of relating to the ground than if you just have a big cushioning and you think you're fine, which by the way, when you have more cushioning and you land on something that if you land on something asymmetrically, it makes your ankle twist. And people have, I have, there's no data on this yet. This is totally my theory, but I've been hearing it anecdotally for years now with these super high, highly elevated, highly cushioned shoes. I'm hearing more and more people who've never had injuries getting two interesting kind of injuries. Uh, clavicle fractures and wrist fractures because they're falling. They're tripping on the sole because the higher you get, the harder it is to balance. So anyway, all right, backing up to this 20 <laughs> seconds. If you feel like you're sore because you hurt something, then you A, definitely want to rest until you feel better. And B, you need to definitely pay attention the next time you do that 20 seconds to your gait. What are you doing? There are a few cues to use to speed up the process of figuring out how to do this well, things like make sure you're landing with your foot underneath your center of mass. And one way you might need to try and do that to figure out what that means, because when our brains wire to certain movement patterns, it's very hard to do something different. So you wanna to try to exaggerate it in both directions. Try to overstride more so you can feel what that looks like. Try to land with your feet behind you like Fred Flintstone starting a car, which is not <laughs> possible, but it's a good cue. Think about um, lifting your foot off the ground before it even hits the ground. Pick up your cadence a tiny bit. Don't run faster. Just move your legs a tiny bit faster. Um, uh, you want to lift your foot off the ground instead of pushing your foot off the ground. So think about if you step on a bee, you don't push your foot off the ground. That drives a stinger further in. You reflexively flex your hip and that lifts your foot off the ground. Use that as a cue about how to get your foot off the ground. <clears throat> There's others as well. Like imagine your feet are on a wheel and you know a wheel just barely touches the ground. You want to do that same kind of thing with your feet as well, <clears throat> excuse me. So if you, if you just went barefoot, for example, and used, does this feel good or not, and experimented, 
you'd eventually figure it out. But these are all just little cues to use to just get more comfortable with that little bit and then add a little more. And then if you're running five days a week, you know, maybe at some point you'll take one day where you're doing barefoot or minimal and then maybe a day and a half and then maybe two. And, you know, so again, it's, it's a titration to get used to it. Yeah. I, you know, I would also say that videoing yourself to actually see what the reality is. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're raising an interesting point. The, so my undergraduate research um, at Duke was on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And some people, um, you know, when I say if it hurts, do something different until you're having fun. Some people can't tell if it hurts. Their brain, what's literally happened is from not giving their brain feedback from the sole of their foot, the brain map that is getting, the part of the brain map that is getting information from your foot shuts off basically. Cause it's like, oh, you're not gonna use that, give me that info. Well, I'm not gonna waste any energy. So some people can't tell if it hurts. They need to start just walking around barefoot on mildly unpleasant surfaces. Nothing, you know, again, just, just enough to stimulate your foot and wake up those nervous pathways again. The second group of people can tell if it hurts, but to your point about video, they don't have great proprioceptive skills. These are people, if you say, play, you know, put your arm out parallel over the ground, they raise their arm like they're trying to answer a class, something in class. And they don't know that they're doing this. I've seen people, I've had people contact us and say, this, the rubber on your zero shoes is messed up because look how I wore out the heel. And I go, well, you're overstriding and heel strike. They go, well, I don't do that. I go, eh, send me a video. And there's the video. Of course, they're doing that because it's physics. You know, friction wears things out. Friction creates abrasion. And, but they literally don't believe it. We had in Bill Sands' lab, we had an accomplished, quote, barefoot runner who actually spent most of his time in five fingers. And when he was barefoot, impeccable form. As soon as he put on the five fingers, overstriding and heel striking, and here's the kicker, did not know, could not tell, which goes back here, can we tell what's going to get us injured? Um, the third group of people, they can tell if it hurts, they have decent proprioceptive skills, they just need some of those cues like the ones that I gave. And then the fourth group of people, they're naturals, they figure it out really quickly. The problem they have is it's so much fun to take off your shoes and feel the ground because that's the way we're built. That's the way we're wired. Our brain is looking for that, that they do too much too soon and then get tired and revert to one of those previous levels without noticing. So all of the, unfortunately, there's not a good self-diagnostic for how to know which one of those groups you're in in advance of just going out and giving it a whirl and seeing what happens. Right, right. And I, I think that's was one of the common uh, problems that, you know, when we first started seeing minimalistic footwear, um, that being like the, especially the five fingers, you know, when that started selling is that people just went full bore. They're like, yeah. I'm, I'm sold on this. Right. Yeah. You know, without the, you know, learning the adaptations and, and getting into the intricacies of form. And well, there's, there's, a, there's two other problems. One is ironically, when Vibram started making a five finger style specifically for running the Kila, they made it thicker with more padding. And so they made it worse. And the second is that humans, we like to have simple answers to quest complex questions, like what's the transition plan? And the real answer is, I don't know, because it's individual. It's right. based on which one of those neurological levels you're at, how well you learn, how much time you're putting into things, what you do. It's sort of like, there's an old Sufi joke of um, a guy trying to get to Bombay and he doesn't know where he is. And he sees a farmer and he yells, farmer, how far to Bombay? And the farmer looks at him and just goes back to farming. The guy yells again, farmer, how long to Bombay? The farmer looks at him and just goes back to farming. The guy's like, ah, screw it. And just starts walking. And the farmer yells, three hours. The guy says, wait, I asked you twice and you didn't say anything. And then I'm leaving. You tell me three hours. And the farmer says, I didn't know how fast you walked. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, one other question I have too is, um, you know, you started talking about how, 
um, you have to start addressing more uncomfortable surfaces, you know, surfaces, but very, very gradually. Yeah, you know, like, like, look, if you're, if your driveway is not smooth, start there. Right. If you've got a little pea gravel, start there. If, you know, if the road yep. outside of your house is, uh, is you know, not something that's great, you know, yep. start there. If it's too much, put on a pair of socks. Again, just, you, you just want to start waking up the nervous system. Does the foot become accustomed to that, to the, you know, to that surface? Does it, I mean, obviously you feel it, but like the the brain brain is accustomed. So it's not, you don't become numb. You become more, you, one of the, the, one of the number one functions of the brain is weeding out uh, information that's not necessary. I mean, that's the biggest thing that it does is you learn to ignore the stuff that's unnecessary. The, when there's certain skills that as you learn them, the reason you're getting better is you're just not paying attention to stuff that isn't relevant for the skill. It's not even that you're improving anything other than ignoring what's not necessary. So there are a couple of things that happen. Um, I wish I had been smart enough to record certain kinds of data from the day that I went barefoot and, uh, or in zero shoes um, till now, but I, I wasn't smart enough because what seems to have happened is things that were unpleasant to walk on originally, like we had you know, big rocks in our driveway or on the side of our driveway. I couldn't step on them at all. Um, after six months, then it was no problem for two reasons. One, I was more attentive to how, three reasons. I was more attentive to where I was placing my feet. I was more attentive to the feedback I was getting. It's like, should I add weight to this foot or not? And also I felt like my, my foot was getting more flexible and just bending around things more. And maybe a fourth thing, I think my reflex arc got faster too. So if I did ultimately step on something unpleasant, I was coming off of it more quickly. All of that combined. Um, but it's not, there's this idea that your feet get numb or that your feet uh, develop calluses, couldn't be for, or your skin gets super thick, couldn't be further from the truth. The biggest thing is more about awareness and um, your brain getting used to it. For some people going barefoot and, and it's so much fun. It's actually overstimulating. So they need to put on something just to kind of calm it down. Cause when your brain hasn't gotten certain kinds of information for a long time, and then you give it the information, it can be overwhelming. If you want to see great examples of this, look at uh, videos of especially, well, it can be all people of any age, like deaf people who get cochlear implants or blind people who get, you know, like a corneal transplant. Or I watched a video yesterday of a, like a one-year-old whose vision was so bad, she, uh, maybe two years old, called everybody mommy and daddy because she couldn't see faces because her vision was so blurry. Then they put glasses on her and look at the face and they're like overwhelmed by the natural feedback. And it can be like that with your feet too. Because yeah. look, you have more nerve endings in your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and lips. So clearly there's a lot of information that your brain's looking to get. If you haven't been giving it to, to your brain for a while, turning on that spigot can feel like Niagara Falls for some people. Yeah. The reason I asked is I live on a gravel road and you know I walk my dog, I run. And um, I, like you know, I, I said before we started, I, I live in the Oswego, um, which is one of uh, Stephen's shoes. And I walk my dog in it and like, I have gradually become more accustomed to the gravel under my foot without even noticing, you know, when I go for a walk, whereas when I first started it, it definitely, I was like, wow, you know, I, I really noticed this. I have to be more ginger, but as I walk now, I I'm not as um, concerned with, you know, size of the stone and such. My foot has been, you know, kind of uh, it's, it's less, I guess I am less cognizant of what's underfoot. Um, I'm going to bet there's another quality. I bet that many of the times you're stepping on things and it just feels interesting or good or foot massage or even it if it doesn't feel quote comfortable, it's interesting. 
I, it could, I can perceive it a lot differently. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you like, know. like, like I, I spent a lot of time barefoot. I was in Costco the other day uh, in line at the pharmacy. And when I wear shoes, um, I wear mismatched colors so that people notice them. <laughs> and I was doing that the other day. And uh, there's a guy behind me in line and he goes, Hey, your shoes don't match. And the pharmacist goes, he's wearing shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's times the, the parking lot of Costco, when I go barefoot is not pleasant, but it's really interesting. It, it is. Um, and I'd also like to go back to something you, you said earlier, which kind of struck me when we were just discussing this, and that was the Achilles tendon. Mm. Um, there's a times where um, folks, uh, you know, we've, we've created high heels for women, yeah. Um, yeah. even heels for men. And yeah. they, you know, is, is it true uh, that the Achilles can be shortened over time? Or is that, you know, is that a myth? And if so, if you were to, to go to something more, more flat, you know, yeah. we'll say zero drop, does that overstretch the Achilles or can you restretch out the Achilles? How does that work? Yeah. Um, I can answer this one really easily. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that there's research on that. I know that it's a common thing that comes up. You know, people talk about that when they talk about sitting all day, they go, your, you know, your hip flexors are shortening. I don't, uh, it strikes me as unlikely that tendons and ligaments actually shorten. It strikes me as more likely that, um, in fact, this just occurred to me. Do you know anything about the Feldenkrais method? I've heard of it, but not familiar enough to. Feldenkrais, it was brought over um, a guy named Moshe Feldenkrais. And one of the things they do in the Feldenkrais method, the basic idea in the Feldenkrais method is that most movement limitations, if it's not an actual, even if it's an injury, if you've you know, ripped something or torn something, but when you're healing, um, there's going to be a certain limitation. Most limitations, or again, even with an injury, a significant amount of the limitation that you're experiencing even after the injury is neurological, not physical. In other words, it's your brain telling your body, oh, oh don't do that because that's dangerous. And so, um, and what they do in the Feldenkrais technique is all these things to fake your brain out. So they'll like, someone has a frozen shoulder, they can't lift their arm you know, above parallel to the ground. There's things where they put your body in a different angle and have you move and suddenly your arm is over your head, but you're pointing towards the wall instead of the ceiling. And then they have you stand up and you go, oh my God, my arm's above my head. And then the brain suddenly goes, and, and you get like elated. Your brain is like, oh, I can do that safely. I was, I was waiting for that. I remember I had a session with a guy, one of the guys who brought Feldenkrais to America. This is 30, oh Jesus, almost. Holy crap. This was a long time ago. This is in 89 <laughs> um, with a guy uh, named Thomas Hanna. And so I had, I was an all-American gymnast and gymnasts all have shoulder problems and back problems. And so I had a shoulder problem and he says, well, it's coming from your lap. And he did this thing where I'm reaching overhead and I can only reach so far. And then he had me contract in the opposite direction, make the thing that was hurting hurt even more. And then as I was reaching again, he just gave me a slight tug and I suddenly had like eight inches more range of motion. And I was, I was high and then suddenly it was fine because my brain realized, oh, that's safe. So this is my suspicion. I don't know if there's research about this, that similar things happen when you get in habitual patterns, your brain gets the idea, oh, that's the limit of what you can do. So um, uh, I, in a way I'm recommending Feldenkrais if you're, you know, want to experiment with this, if you think you have too tight something um, because stretching, actually stretching, especially ligaments and tendons, really doesn't happen. I mean, that's just highly, highly unlikely. Okay. Yeah, maybe a tiny bit. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Um, 
Sorry, oh. unless unless you're the kind of person who the whose fascial system and ligamentous structure allows for that. So, like contortionists, um, not everyone can be a contortionist, but there's some people who can, and they do work on ligament and tendon stretching. Uh, but that that's extreme. So I don't want to use the extremes to make a point about normal. Yeah, no, it's great. I, we hadn't even touched on the fascial system. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we could have a whole conversation on that. And <laughs> yeah. I, I want to be uh, cognizant of your time too. Um, I like, I'm sure we, you and I could probably go on for, <laughs> for hours and such, but I think you've, you've definitely brought a lot to the table for folks to, to think about and, and move forward with. Um, is there anything we'd be remiss not to mention with everything we've talked about? Yes. So again, I'm not saying that you need to switch your shoes when you're going out and doing whatever your running is, but I will recommend that you switch your shoes when you're not running. If you're not going to switch to something minimal and try and experiment with running, because look, here's the thing. My, well, boy, where to begin? <laughs> My contention is that running better. Uh, oh, sorry, let me, this is so hard for me to do. I'm trying to get it all in one sentence, which isn't going to work. That's fine. Expand. Fundament, <laughs> fundamentally, what we're talking about, I got to inhale first. Fundamentally, what we're talking about is really about form, not footwear. It's just that the footwear informs the form. In different kinds of footwear, you have more ability to do, to change your form because you're getting the feedback that you need to make changes to your gait pattern. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, um, Dr. Sarah Ridge showed that just walking in minimalist shoes builds foot muscle strength as much as doing an actual foot exercise program. She didn't do the study with zero shoes, but she has said that um, zero shoes would give the same benefits as the shoes she used for the study. So when is weaker better than stronger? Pretty much never. So why not build foot strength when you're not running just by walking around barefoot or in a truly minimalist shoe? We have professional hockey players ice hockey players who wear our shoes and they go, I'm skating better in my binding, you know, foot binding skates, because when I'm out of them, I'm strengthening my feet by wearing shoes that let my feet move naturally. I mean, it's just use it or lose it. There's research from Katrina Protopropos and others showing that when you put arch support in the shoes of healthy athletes, they lose up to 17% of the muscle mass in their feet in under 12 weeks. When is weaker, better than stronger? Never. So if you are, oh wait, there's another one. Dr. Isabel Sacco again, showed that doing a foot strengthening program over the course of a year for people running in normal shoes, their injury rate was reduced by two and a half times. So you put those three studies together and look, if you're gonna run in padded elevated heel shoes, you don't wanna change anything, I get it. But what I'm suggesting is by building strength, like if you, if you break your arm, when it comes out of a cast, you have two choices, never use it again, or spend some time doing some strengthening so you can use it for the rest of your life. I'm suggesting you do some time doing some strengthening so you can use your body well for the rest of your life. And again, that doesn't mean switching to what we do 24 seven, but there's a way to use this that will benefit you even if you don't. And why would you not want to do that? Well said, that was well said. Steven, how can people find you? Uh, well, if you stalk me, you'll get a restraining order. So don't do that. <laughs> so instead, um, you can go to our website, zeroshoes.com. That's X-E-R-O shoes.com. But if your computer accidentally makes you type zero, guess with a Z, it'll still get to us. Uh, we're on social media at, at zero shoes or slash zero shoes, wherever you at or slash. And that's how to find us. Perfect. Oh, man, Steve, it was a great conversation. I appreciate you sharing all this with us. And uh, thanks for my favorite chat. So thank you. Thank you again to Stephen. Uh, what a great time. Uh, Stephen has invited me to be on his podcast, um, the Movement Movement Podcast. <laughs> so uh, 
I am I'm looking forward to that. We'll be recording um, after this episode comes out. This episode uh, will come out on Thursday, um, December sixteenth. And uh, I'll be recording with Stephen on the 17th. I don't know when that will release, but I'll post on my social medias when it does. Uh, looking forward to that conversation uh, just because I had such a great time with him. Um, those of you that, that know, uh, in my newsletter, I have reviewed uh, the Mesa Trail. That's one of my favorite shoes that Zero does. Um, I, I really I, I enjoy running in that shoe. I ran in it today. Uh, I'm recording uh, on the 15th, the day before the podcast release. And um, I haven't been running much. If you've seen on Strava, um, I've really, um, you know, I really hit a, a, a training kind of uh, just a, a hole. I just was, you know, really fatigued. Um, those of you that watch my daily videos on YouTube, uh, I've been trying to update those. I haven't been running, so I really haven't had much to post. I haven't had the results from my blood test. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm seeking answers to find out, you know, what's going on. Why am I having such a hard time? Uh, what is the fatigue all about? You know, I, I suspect it's not overtraining, um, but something a little bit deeper. So we are we're trying to figure that out. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I'll I'll be keeping the YouTube channel up to date with uh, with what's going on. I recorded today on my run. Today was the first run I've had in a while and it felt so good to be out there no matter what pace, uh, just my energy levels felt better. And I can't tell you how good it felt just to feel good. <laughs> um, that was that was great. It really set the tone, uh, made me come into this podcast, uh, you know, recording the intro and the outro with with such positivity. I really feel good, um, you know, and much better than I have. My energy levels are returning to normal. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I talked about it on the YouTube video. So check out the YouTube video um, from uh, December 15th. Give you some updates and keep you up to speed with what I'm up to. Um, other than that, my goodness, um, you know, it's, it's the holiday season, obviously, and my kids are really looking forward to it. So um, my wife, my attention have been on, you know, trying to make this uh, a special uh, holiday for, for our kids and our family. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this holiday season, um, that you get to see those that you love and spend time with them. Um, it's such a, such a great time of year. So, um, you know, other things, uh, man, um, I, um, I have, I owe, uh, Enda a review of their, their new trail shoe. Uh, I need a few more runs on it. Obviously I haven't been able to run much. Um, I do have some, um, some initial thoughts and, and such, but I want to give it a little bit more time, uh, to, to kind of feel it out a little bit, see how it wears after some, some more miles. Um, so stay tuned for that. I will be posting that review online, uh, on the YouTube channel. Um, and, um, let's see what else the, uh, coaching world, uh, coaching has been, um, filling back up my goodness. Uh, you know, I had, a um, everybody finished up their season and, uh, and, you know, uh, as, as, you know, runners should, they took a break and, um, you know, some, some had just stayed on board for their, you know, their goal race, uh, and, um, others are returning, but, um, you know, if you're interested in talking about coaching, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can find out more about my coaching on the MRRunningPains.com website. Uh, I'm going to be updating that as, uh, you know, as, as, as it should from time to time, uh, you know, as, as my coaching evolves and my coaching philosophy involve, uh, evolves. Um, really been enjoying my conversations, um, especially with my athletes right now. We're kind of doing year-end evaluations. Uh, talked about that in my previous episode, um, but 
it's it's really been um, fun kind of going through things and, and hearing their perspective on races and training and, and hearing uh, successes, failures, uh, you know, pitfalls, everything. Just, you know, we, we're being open and honest and things that I can do better um, and improve on. And, uh, you know, I, that's what I'm about. I really want to improve as a coach and, um, and learn. I, I've, I've, uh, signed on, uh, to, uh, to be in the scholar program for, um, the, uh, on running, um, gentlemen, they're just Steve Magnus and, uh, uh, his cohort. They're just a wealth of knowledge. They share so much. So I've been kind of diving in there. Uh, you know, I love, obviously I love training folks for, uh, for ultra. I, 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 I really enjoy that aspect of training, but, um, I'm really starting to enjoy training folks for faster events too. Not that I've, I haven't done that in the past. That's primarily what I started off with was training people 5k to marathon. Um, so, you know, that's really where my, my foundations are. Uh, but I've been learning more and more as, um, you know, these, these successful coaches are sharing their training and, and kind of, uh, opening my eyes to to new ideas, um, which I hope to apply not only to the uh, marathon and under events, but as well as to ultra. I think there are some applicable things we can do. So um, long story short, if you are interested in having a conversation, don't hesitate to reach out. You can do so again through my website or uh, you know, any of my social media channels, uh, through Strava, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm happy to, to have that conversation and discuss whether I'm a right fit for you. Um, not every coach is a right fit for the athlete. Uh, you know, there are people that are looking for certain aspects and strengths in a coach that I may not possess. I understand that. Um, I am not for everybody. And, um, you know, I, I, I sincerely hope that I can help. I, um, that's, <laughs> that's my joy is helping others and, and trying to get them to, uh, to their respective goals and finish lines. But again, you know, if we have a conversation and you don't feel I'm the right fit for you, I understand. Uh, it's completely, uh, completely up to you and well, and to me to some extent, if I don't feel we're a right fit, then I, I may suggest you, you know, you keep looking, uh, which, you know, that's, uh, that's part of the conversation. So, um, other things. Oh my goodness. I, uh, I just got a call from, um, Frank Giannino, uh, talked about it in my, uh, my YouTube video, but, uh, really wanted to share. I just am so thrilled and honored. Um, we have, um, a, uh, a run club back home that's been, you know, going on for, for a long time. I used to do a lot of their races when I lived back in Middletown, New York, uh, back when I was in high school and such, and even, uh, you know, post high school, I would do some of their races. Uh, one of them being the orange classic 10 K, which is just an amazing longstanding 10, uh, 10 kilometer race road race, uh, that brought in just some phenomenal runners. Uh, but anyway, they have nominated me. Um, I will be inducted into their hall of fame. Um, so I am going to go back home for that. Uh, they said my invitations in the mail. So really honored to be, uh, to be inducted and recognized, uh, into the hall of fame. Uh, this is pretty cool. You know, even though it's, uh, it's a local thing to me, um, it, it means a lot to me, um, you know, being recognized back home, uh, for, you know, my, my contributions and, uh, um, accolades for running. So, um, you know, very, very honored and, and I just, uh, it'll be great to see everybody when I, when I go back home, unfortunately it is right before uh, hellbender. So it'll be a, a quick trip, but, um, 
yeah, lots going on with Hellbender as well. Um, you know, stay up to t- date with that with uh, with Facebook. I uh, just sent out all the runners. Uh, you know, kind of a, an introduction email, uh, kind of you know keeping them up to speed, uh, working on the participant guide. You know, all of that stuff. You'll hear more um, updates in the Hellbender podcast. So uh, tune in for that the uh, first and third Saturday of each month. Uh, that will be released, so you can subscribe to that one as well. Uh, this su- this Saturday, uh, we'll be re- releasing our next episode. So um, stay tuned for that Saturday morning. And um, man, other than that, um, I think that's that's everything. Um, we're we're mid month here, and I'm already thinking about uh, January newsletter. So um, if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, go ahead and do so. Uh, it's a free uh, newsletter that comes out once a month. Uh, it is um, uh, you can subscribe on my uh, uh, website once again, mrrunningpains.com. So subscribe there, and you can see all the archived uh, uh, newsletters and podcast episodes on the website as well so check those out uh, you can see what you're signing up for uh, a lot of tips reviews articles things that you know i i try to uh try to make uh, available and helpful um to to you know to everybody for free so check that out um i, I once again encourage uh you know those of you that can uh to support the the podcast uh by either you know liking um, or sharing the podcast that is super helpful in getting this out there um, as well as subscribing to my YouTube channel um, I do have a patreon page um, and I, you know I, I don't plead for for people to uh, to be involved um, if you can that is wonderful uh, the patreon dollars go to trying to get um, gear and shoes uh, to those that you know maybe can't swing it they can't afford it uh, or you know simply really need it. Um, so, uh, you know, trying, trying to give back through Patreon and, uh, you know, raising money and awareness through, uh, both the YouTube channel, uh, the newsletter and, um, through this podcast. So trying to put out, uh, you know, substantial amount of media on top of what I already do. So I hope you'll support that. Uh, it can be as little as a dollar a month. Uh, you know, like I said, everything goes to, uh, to helping others. Um, you know, this, this past month I sent out, uh, gosh, over 20 packages of gear to runners, um, you know, various, uh, packs and bottles and all sorts of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I'm <laughs> wipe me out more so than what I actually had from, uh, Patreon donations, but happy to do it. Um, happy to, you know, help other folks out. Um, you know, our, our school shoe scholarship is, uh, is, is still open. Uh, so if anybody uh, wants to apply, they don't have enough money to swing a pair of shoes or know somebody that could use a pair of shoes and just can't swing it right now due to the financial strains of, of the holidays or perhaps in between paychecks. Um, I want to keep people running. So if you know somebody or you yourself could use a new pair of shoes, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, it will be private. It's between us. Um, I, you know, I'll take care of the shoes and the shipping. You don't have to pay a dime. Same thing with the gear. Uh, once I have more gear and a little bit more money <clears throat> built up from, uh, from, you know, Patreon donations, I will, uh, I'll post some more gear. I have some more gear to, to send out. So stay tuned for that. Um, man. Yeah. So, um, a lot going on, but, uh, I want to thank those that do support on Patreon. Uh, really thank you guys for, for all of your support. Uh, you have really made a difference in a runner's life. Um, you know, as simple as, you know, providing, uh, the postage to, to send some of this gear off. So thank you guys so much for being a part of this. And, uh, I can't wait to, you know, to talk to you guys next time. Uh, it'll be right before Christmas. 
Uh, so uh, hopefully we'll have a, uh, a special episode uh, for, you know, for the holidays. And I really hope everybody's doing well. If you need anything, have any ideas, want to be a guest, please, again, reach out. Thank you guys and run on, my friends.